All right, if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 33. We're going to begin in Genesis 33 this morning, and then we will move on from there. We're going to eventually land on Matthew 18, but start in the book of Genesis, Genesis 33. Um, So when I was in elementary, junior high, high school, growing up, going through the school system, uh, one of the things that we would notice in the hallways in between classes or outside when we were at PE was that there was a lot of fights that would break out. But I was never one of the persons that was involved in a fight. I stayed away from that. My entire career growing up in school, I only threw one punch, and I'm not pr- proud of that. But I'll tell you how it happened. Uh, when I was in high school, I was, playing, I was a sophomore, I was playing for the JV football team, And every Tuesday, we would scrimmage the varsity football team. So we were out there, and they would always rough us up because they were bigger than us. And I played defense, and then so the starting tight end for the varsity team would have to block me, and he would always be a little extra rough with me, take some cheap shots. They'd blow the whistle, and I would stop, and then he'd come hit me when he'd run by. And I just, I'd had enough of it. And finally, at one point, he came and gave me a cheap shot, and I just reared back, and I threw a fist. And I punched him right in the face mask. And it hurt my hand really bad. It didn't hurt him at all. Uh, did nothing to him. If you ever watch football and somebody punches a face mask, it doesn't make sense because it does nothing to the person. It hurt my hand, and I looked over, and the coaches were watching. So you would think if you throw a punch, you're about to get in big trouble, and instead they just laughed. They just laughed, and the reason that I didn't get in trouble... And the reason that he didn't get in trouble is because he was my older brother, and so they just assume <laughs> that's what brothers do. They just, they fight, and sometimes there may be some punches thrown, and they get a pass because they're brothers. And so we were talking about that this past week at Thanksgiving, and I told him uh, that I forgive him. I said, I give you grace. I forgive you. I give you grace for making me do something as stupid as punch your face mask, because that really did hurt my hand. This morning we're going to talk about this word grace. We have studied through some holiday words, and starting next Sunday we're going to move in a different direction with the new sermon series, but we're going to wrap this one up. We've looked at different holiday words that maybe impact us as disciples or words that you might hear throughout the holidays. One of those words is grace. Maybe not something you hear very often unless someone says, let's say grace meaning, let's say, a prayer, or uh, like we heard in our prayer this morning, we can refer to God as our gracious heavenly Father. Grace is a word that, as you read through Paul's letters in the New Testament, you see this word often. But what does it mean to give and to receive grace? What does that mean to us as followers of Jesus? So to talk about grace this morning, I'm going to talk about a few different things. I'm going to talk about family problems. That's why I've asked you to turn to the book of Genesis. I'm going to tell you a story about a jewelry thief. We're going to look at gift giving in the ancient world. I'm going to tell you about what an annoying teacher is. We're going to talk about Cyber Monday. And, of course, we're going to talk about Jesus. So that's the direction we're going this morning. Let's start with family problems. I just told you a story about two brothers throwing punches at each other. And I'm sure if you have siblings, maybe you've experienced something similar. I read a statistic recently that this time of year, during Thanksgiving, during November, that counseling sessions dramatically increase. That counselors, licensed counselors and therapists, their waiting rooms are full. So that probably says something about America and the holidays. 
What's supposed to be a joyful time, a time where we're excited to see friends and family, winds up becoming a very stressful time for a lot of us. For some of you, you have to see people that you haven't seen in a year. Maybe it's people that you don't get along with. Maybe it's someone that has hurt you in the past. Or maybe your family has gone through a transition, gone through a life transition. Some of you have experienced death in the past year. So you experience death in the family, and that changes things. I know that was the experience with my family the last few years. It changes where you go and what you do. Some of you have experienced divorce, and when you experience that, then you have to choose where the kids go at what time, and that can become stressful. Or maybe someone gets married, or you have kids, and all these transitions, these life transitions that take place, it can change your holiday plans, and when you mess with something that's sacred, some sacred tradition, occasionally words are said that shouldn't be said, that are uncalled for. People get in arguments, and there's just tension. Maybe you experience that, or or maybe you don't, and if you don't, that's great. But a lot of families, they do experience this tension during the holidays, this stress, this anxiety spike. So one of the best ways to get through it is this word, grace. And I want to use the book of Genesis to start off as our example because... One of the things that you see in the book of Genesis is all these family problems, especially sibling rivalries. The book of Genesis is full of it. I love Genesis because it's so raw and it's so true to human emotion. What they struggled with in the early humans, we still struggle with today. Right away in Genesis 4, you see Cain and Abel. You see siblings having problems with each other. And then a murder takes place. And then you fast forward to Genesis chapter 25, and twins are born. Esau is born first, and then Jacob. They're born what seems like in competition. You know, Jacob is grasping his brother's heel, it says. But Esau is the older brother, and usually the oldest brother receives the divine blessings from the father, receives the inheritance... But in the book of Genesis, it seems to be the opposite. The younger brother seems to receive those blessings. And that's what happens with Jacob and Esau. Esau is the older brother, but Jacob deceives Esau twice for the birthright and then tricks his dad, who was blind at the time, dresses up like Esau and receives the blessing. And that may not seem like much to us in our world, but in their culture and in the ancient world, a blessing and a birthright was everything to them. And Jacob stole it from his brother. He tricked him. So Esau vows to get his revenge. He is going to get Jacob back. So what does Jacob do? With the help of his mother, Jacob runs away. And Jacob almost takes the same trip that Abraham takes, except in reverse. He spends many years running. And then we get to Genesis 32, and the time comes for Jacob and Esau to cross paths. So last time Jacob has seen Esau, he tricked him, he pretended like he was Esau, and all he knows is that Esau hates him and wants to kill him. So in Genesis 32, we get this strange story in the middle of the night where Jacob wrestles with what seems like God. Jacob receives a new name, he's now called Israel, and then his hip is injured, so he walks away limping. 
And then the next day he goes to meet Esau. And then in Genesis 33, he sees his brother for the first time in years, not knowing what's going to happen. And we're told that when Esau sees Jacob, he runs towards him, he pulls out his sword, he strikes Jacob down, and he gets his revenge, and everybody in the audience was clapping and cheering. That's actually not what happens. But if we were watching a movie, that's probably what we would want to see happen. Instead, what we're told in Genesis 33, verse 4, Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. They wept together. This scene almost sounds very similar to Luke 15 when Jesus tells the parable of the lost son. When the son comes home and the dad runs and greets him, Esau runs and he greets Jacob. He doesn't get his revenge like he had vowed to do many years before that. Instead, Esau extends grace to his brother Jacob. Imagine that alternative ending that I just mentioned. Had Esau tried to get his revenge, that wouldn't have just affected Jacob and Esau. That would have affected their families. It would have affected God working in history. It would have affected the Israelites. When you want to get revenge and vengeance and you hold on to a grudge, it doesn't just affect you, it affects everyone else around you. So then we move on to Joseph and his brothers in Genesis 37 through 51. Uh, Jacob has children. Joseph is the youngest. Uh, Joseph is the favorite. You know, see, Jacob parents in a way that was modeled to him, and his parents chose favorites, so Jacob chooses favorites. And Joseph, the youngest son, is the favorite, so his brothers, they don't like that. And they want to get rid of him. They actually want to kill him, but they're talked into just selling him as a slave. And so for many years... Jacob believes that his youngest son, Joseph, is dead. He just disappears. Little did he know that he was living in Egypt. So all these years go by. You know the story. Joseph makes his way up, and he becomes a second-hand man to Pharaoh. There's a famine in the land. So Jacob sends his sons, and little do they know, they're running in to the younger brother that they sold. And we find this in Genesis chapter 45, starting in verse Four, Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And when they leaned in, Joseph had the guards behind him strike his brothers down. Again, that's not what happened. You can imagine these alternative endings. Instead, Joseph does something similar to what Esau does for Jacob. He says, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you, were sold, you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. His take on it is, it's okay. Don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves. God's been working this whole time. And he sends for his dad. His dad comes back. Eventually his dad passes away. And then Genesis chapter 50, they're afraid again. They're afraid that now they're going to be forced to become slaves, and that Joseph is going to get his revenge. And Joseph gives them these words in Genesis chapter 50. In their fear, they wept together. In verse 18, his brothers also wept, fell down before him, and said, We are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good. 
in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear, I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. So he doesn't get his revenge. Instead, Joseph extends grace to his brothers, something they didn't deserve, just like Esau did to Jacob. But imagine how different human history would be had they tried to get their revenge. But instead, God worked through the grace that was extended to their brothers. So grace is a great way to handle family problems. And I'm not going to get into all the details of what your family may be going through, but that's an important word to keep in mind. Now let's talk about jewelry thieves. Several years ago, there was this woman, her name is Aubrey. She asked her husband, Nick, uh, to meet together with the preacher because she had something to confess to them. So they, their minds were wondering. They had no idea what she was going to confess. She sat down in the room. Her husband didn't know this. The preacher had no idea what was going on. And she confessed that for the last year, she had been stealing. Stealing jewelry from a jewelry store locally. She had stolen thousands of dollars worth of jewelry. And she couldn't live with the guilt any longer. She didn't even wear the jewelry because she was afraid she would get caught. So it just sat in her closet. And they made a decision, they prayed together, they cried together, but they made a decision that the next morning when the store opened, she would show up at the store, ask to speak with the owner, and return the jewelry, and be willing to face the consequences. She assumed she was going to spend some jail time, and whatever else went along with that. So they showed up the next morning, her husband went with her, she had in a box all the jewelry she had stolen, she asked to speak with the owner, they went into a back room, she explained what happened, And said, here is everything that I've stolen. And she was waiting for his response, waiting for him to call the police. They sat in silence for a moment. And finally the store owner said, I appreciate your honesty in bringing this back. And if everything is counted for, you're going to be free to go. She was pardoned. He extended grace to her. He didn't call the police. She went home a free woman that day. But the story doesn't end there. Her and her husband, Nick, own an antique shop. A little over a year later, a man showed up one morning, and he had a jar, an antique jar that was worth about $50 that had gone missing. And he told Aubrey, who owned this antique shop, that he wanted to get an anniversary gift for his wife, and he didn't have money, so he stole that jar. And he said, but I can't live with this guilt, so I need to return it. And her response to him, she called the police and had him arrested. So you can imagine all the thousands of dollars that she owed, that she was pardoned from, and this guy stole a $50 jar, and she wasn't willing to extend that same level of grace to him. So grace can be a difficult topic. Matthew chapter 18 is where we're moving to right now. This was our scripture reading this morning. And it sounds like it's about forgiveness. The word grace is not actually used. So I want to talk about how grace fits into this. But in Matthew chapter 18, in verse 21, Peter comes up to Jesus and he says, If a brother, or in the New Revised Standard Version says, If a member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Peter's the one asking the question. He's often the spokesman for the disciples. Little does Peter know 
that he's about to commit an offense that he is going to need forgiveness for. He makes some assumptions here. He assumes that someone might sin against him or wrong him, but he doesn't assume that he could actually sin against or wrong someone else. So where's the limit? Where do we draw the line? Seven times? That's a lot. How long do we postpone getting our vengeance or vindicating ourselves against someone who has wronged us? And then Jesus responds in verse 22, and he said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. Or depending on what translation you're reading, it may say 70 times seven or something like that. You know, the translation is a little bit difficult there, but Jesus' response is, you keep forgiving. Unlimited forgiveness. This morning, as we talk about grace, I believe grace, for a lot of us, can be a pest. It can be annoying. We don't always like to talk about it. If I say we're going to talk about grace this morning, there's somebody out there who says, yeah, but. But what about God's wrath? Or what about judgment? Or justice? Why do we always talk about grace? Can't we talk about something else? And not that I always talk about grace, but I think that grace can be an annoying teacher because we want to move on from it. I think that's a lot of what Paul was dealing with with the churches that he wrote letters to. Don McLaughlin, in his book, uh, Love First, tells a story about when he was working on his master's, this man, his name is Archbishop Desmond Tutu, which I know is a funny name, so I'll just refer to him as Desmond. Uh, He was teaching the class... And all of his lessons centered around the love of God. So some of the students started to complain. And they said, when are we going to move on from the love of God? His response to the class was, the fact that you want to move on from the love of God shows all the more why we need to keep talking about it. Because you don't have it yet. You still don't get it down. When I read through Paul's letters... Sometimes that's what I think, is Paul wants to keep coming back to this topic of grace as he tries to unite Gentile and Jewish believers because he feels like they don't have it yet. We have a love-hate relationship with grace. Grace, in its definition, is unmerited favor or undeserved favor. So when we talk about grace, we think about Or at least you should, we should think about the cross. We think about Jesus and his willingness to make a sacrifice and to offer his own blood. And we take communion every week and we remember this. He does something for us that we don't deserve and something that we can't own or we can't accomplish on our own. That's unmerited favor. God extends that to all of us. But we have this love-hate relationship with grace because we love that. We celebrate that. We sing songs about this grace that God has given us. But the hate part of the relationship is we hate to extend it to others. That's where it gets difficult. We love receiving it, and we all know that at times we're failures, we're sinners, and we just need God's grace to cover us, to help us move forward. We love that, but we hate to extend it to others sometimes. So we have this love-hate relationship, and grace becomes an annoying teacher to us. Let's look at this parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18, starting in verse 23. This is in response to this conversation that Peter has started about forgiveness. 
And so Jesus says, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. So in this parable, it seems like the king represents God, and the slaves or the servants represent maybe the Pharisees. But I'm going to assume it means all of us, all humans, so this would make the application for us as well. When he began the reckoning, when he's settling these accounts, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Just a side note, that's a lot of money. That's a ridiculous amount of money, an amount of money that would take him years to pay off. That's a huge debt. So he brings in this man that has this huge debt, and he could not pay it. So his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions and the payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay back everything. He falls down on his knees and he's begging his master, please have patience with me. Don't sell myself and my wife and my children as slaves because then we'll never be able to pay it back. Please let us keep our freedom and I promise you, you can go by my word, I'll pay you back. In verse 27, out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave the debt. You know what? That's a lot of money. You're probably never going to be able to pay it back. Don't worry about it. You're forgiven. Your debt is free. Which would be, you know, I read that. It's hard for me not to think. I wish uh, Sally May and some of these other student loan providers would call me up and say that. Verse 28. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon his fellow slaves, who owed, one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, or denarii, however you pronounce that. That is little compared to what he owed his master. Seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. Then then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and he went and he threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. So he does the exact opposite in this story. This person is pleading with him almost verbatim with the same plea that he had offered his master, but he gives them the opposite reaction. He says, no, you're going to pay it back and I'm going to throw you in prison until you do. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and then went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then the Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? Are you seeing in the parable this correlation between this parable and our own lives? You've had this debt forgiven. You've had mercy on you. Should you not be willing to extend that to others? Verse 34, And in his anger the Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So he winds up having to pay for the debt that he was forgiven of. Verse 35, Jesus gives us an application statement. As we study parables... Oftentimes, Jesus doesn't tell you what it means. Sometimes, a gospel writer will say, this is why he told that parable. But sometimes, it's just left up in the air. and We just have to try to understand and chew on it, what he means. But here, Jesus says in verse 35, So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now, verse 35 is a tough passage. That's one of those ones when I say grace can be an annoying teacher, that's one of those passages you wish we, we don't focus on very often. 
Well, this is the way God will treat you if you're not willing to forgive your brother or sister from your heart. It makes me think, I wonder if I do that. I wonder if when I forgive someone, if I actually forgive them from my heart. To understand, I think, the nature of this parable, I want to talk about gift giving for just a moment. And Christmas time is right around the corner, and maybe your house will begin to look like what you see in this picture, wrapped gifts everywhere. We give gifts to everyone. You show up for Christmas and you're giving gifts not only to your nieces and your nephews and your grandparents and this cousin and that cousin. I get so confused at what gift goes where, but I'm just thankful I have a wife who does all the shopping for that. But this is a time of year where where you're going to give and you're going to exchange gifts. But in the ancient world, it didn't work like that. A man named John Barclay wrote a book, and he called it Paul and the Gift. What he means by that is Paul and his message on grace. In the ancient world, when you referred to the word gift, it was almost synonymous with the word grace. To give someone a gift is you you give them something that they didn't earn. So gift giving wasn't that common. But you only gave gifts to those who were worthy of receiving a gift. Greek and Roman writers wrote a lot about who was worthy and who deserved a gift and how you would determine that. So not everyone received gifts. And then Jesus comes along and he teaches parables like we just read and he responds to Peter with not seven times but 70 times seven or 77 times you keep forgiving. And Jesus says, I offer myself for the whole world. And Paul says the same thing in his letters. This gift, this grace that we're talking about, it's extended not to those who are worthy or those who deserve it, but to everyone. Everyone is unworthy, but everyone receives this gift if they accept it. So this parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18 would have been just as radical to his original audience as it sounds to us today. Uh, This past Friday was Black Friday. Anybody participate in Black Friday? I did not. I stayed home, and it seems like a madhouse. But what sounds better to me is Cyber Monday. I don't understand what that means other than maybe there's discounts on the Internet. Is that what it is? Okay. Cyber Monday, Black Friday, but everywhere you look, you're seeing advertisements for different stores and companies that have a deal for Black Friday or Cyber Monday. And there's always this phrase that goes along with it, a giveaway. You come to our store and we give you this. There's a giveaway that takes place. So my challenge, my argument, is if we're going to participate in any sort of giveaway, maybe the best thing that we can give away this holiday season is the gift of grace. Just as Jesus teaches us, just as you have received grace, so you extend that to others. We can't help how people treat us. We can't control that. But the one thing that we can control is how we treat and respond to others. So maybe this time of year is a good time of year with your family, with friends, with coworkers, or whoever it may be, where you just say, you know what? They mess up and make mistakes just like I do. And you forgive. You practice reconciliation and you extend grace. 
As followers of Jesus, we receive this grace from Christ, and we continually receive this grace to move forward. And Jesus asks us to be willing to extend it to others. The best, grace is best received when you're willing to extend it to someone else. So that's my challenge to you this holiday season, is to be willing to extend grace. Some of you, maybe you haven't even received grace. I know it's a difficult topic. You may think, yes, God gives us grace through, through Jesus, but what about this, this, or that? And maybe you have difficulty actually receiving forgiveness of your sins. Maybe you live with guilt, and you're not trusting in Jesus enough to cover your sins. So maybe you need to fully give yourself to Christ. And maybe this morning is a good opportunity to do that. When you're baptized into Christ, the Bible teaches us that your sins are washed away. And it's through the grace that Jesus gives us that that's even made possible. So maybe you need to receive grace. Maybe you need to extend grace. And may we be people who follow Jesus, who when others look at us, they say, that's some of the most loving people that I've ever met. May we be those people. Uh, Let's stand and let's continue our worship this morning.